Yes, so one of the biggest challenges, or maybe the biggest challenge in the research uh, arena in this disease is that it's happening in groups that we're not really all that great at studying. Hello, I'm Rachel Deere, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the July 31st update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. We've recently switched platforms from YouTube to On24 to provide our learners with a more interactive platform. For an optimal viewing experience, we recommend expanding your browser window while viewing this presentation. You can expand the media player, which the video plays from, or the slides window to suit your preferences. Please note, polling questions will appear in the slides window. Polling questions will appear shortly, as well as at the end. Please click the box that corresponds to your answer choice and click the submit button. Please visit our website for complete CE information. To attest for credit, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There, you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CE programs on a wide range of topics. Today's learning objectives are describe data pertaining to prophylaxis trials, discuss vaccine platforms and development, discuss some of the challenges of conducting clinical trials for COVID treatments. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated and in-kind by DKB Med. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters, and are free of influence from Pfizer. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Alwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He will be interviewing Dr. Shmuel Shoham, an Associate Professor of Medicine at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and Associate Director of the Transplant and Oncology Infectious Diseases Program there. He will be discussing his work in prophylactic and clinical trials related to treatment and prevention of COVID-19. Thank you for your time, doctors. Yeah, th thank you very much, Rachel, and uh, delighted that Dr. Shmuel Shoham can join us, who's on faculty with me at Johns Hopkins is an infectious disease specialist, but uh, has been taking care of a very at-risk population with immunosuppression due to organ transplantation or, or chemotherapy for cancers or leukemia and lymphoma. So Shmuel, thank you. But the, the topic today really is one that uh, you've been involved in for a while, clinical trials, but my gosh, uh, you know, here we are uh, doing things which we couldn't have imagined six months ago and um, would really love to get your sort of perspectives because I think everyone's like, why are things taking long or what are the difficulties doing clinical trials? Everyone wants results. I think people are very impatient. Uh, we know that people are not wearing masks because they're sick of it and you know these sorts of things. So you know, um, for anyone that's either practitioners or patients that might be uh, looking at this, especially in this pandemic, what are some of the the real challenges here to even get getting going, the sort of early phases. Um, and I'll just say, I mean, I'm impressed because you started from nothing to get a, a massively important clinical trial going regarding convalescent plasma along with other colleagues in terms of either treatment or prevention of COVID-19. 
So one thing that I've had is unbelievable support both in the institution and uh, uh, across the country from colleagues, and that's helped to do what uh, really on the surface seems impossible. And what the uh, process is, is first you have a concept, and then you turn the concept into an actual protocol that then has to get regulatory approval and funding and uh, then to uh, turn that into an actual living, breathing protocol that you can enroll patients in. Uh, you have to uh, develop mechanisms to find the patients, screen the patients, and then do the intervention. And all that in an environment where people all around you are very busy uh, taking care of patients and being pulled in the directions of uh, clinical care. It requires a lot of people cooperating and a lot of people thinking outside of the usual pathways, and that's difficult. Uh, there are things that have been built to make biomedical research safe that have been built over painful experience over maybe a century, and here we are telling the people that have they're doing that, no, 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 you got to work really fast through this, and uh, that means that you may have to cut a lot of corners, and that makes people uh, understandably, understandably nervous. The FDA was not created to uh, do things really, really quickly. IRBs were not created to do things really, really quickly, but we're asking them to do it, and, and they are doing it, but it's creating a lot of areas of friction and, and tension, and uh, also there's the, uh, the idea of corona time in real time. So uh, right. I submitted something to the FDA, and a week later, for crying out, a week later, they still hadn't come back with an answer. That's not reality. That was my uh, warped sense of reality that, that, that I'm waiting for them to come back. In, in reality, these things, uh, it, it, as, as you know, Dr. Allwater, from going from a concept to something making a clinical guidelines is uh, to actually patient getting it is sometimes a decade. And here, uh, I was talking about five weeks ago, we told people that steroids was the wrong thing to do. And, and now there's probably no hospital in North America that isn't giving steroids right, for right. hypoxemia. So all that environment of everything moving so quickly. Some of the real challenges that have developed are a lot of great ideas for clinical trials, a lot of people moving along the same pathway, and then all of a sudden you have 14 active clinical trials fighting for those inpatients. How do you balance the ethics of it in terms of, of, of uh, I was talking to my wife yesterday, I was like, could you imagine somebody coming to you and saying, uh, I have this study that it's going to be for your infection. And then a minute later, I have this other study and a minute later, another study. And she having to process what that means and then make a good decision in for doctors that she's never worked with before. Because right. the way this disease is, it's not like the doctor you've had for 20 years who's seeing you for your rheumatological condition and saying, oh, I think you should go on this or that. It's a team that you've never met before. So that's a huge challenge. And then having all the, uh, the different uh, clinicians figure out what is the best potential study for the patient. Now, the oncologists have in some ways kind of figured it out because it's not unusual for somebody to have three or four studies that might fit them. And then in the back room, they discuss the patient and then come up with maybe the best two or or one option and then present that to the patient. Here, we don't know what the best option is yet. We don't have uh, all these years of oncology research to tell us what is the right thing for a triple negative breast cancer or, or something of that nature. And then in the outpatient environment, then you have a whole new set of challenges in that you're trying to do things in a COVID positive space. Some places have a COVID positive space and some places had it, but then when the infection went away for the most part, they went back to usual operations and it no longer exists. So where do you do research on that patient? So we've actually brought in these uh, vans that we put on, uh, on campus at one of our satellite campus to do the research in those vans as opposed to in the usual research place. And then the 
other aspect that's a challenge is one of our sites has been ready to enroll patients, but all of a sudden they're in Florida and they've had a deluge of patients uh, for clinical care. So all the research nurses have been taken away to provide regular nursing care. So now they can't do the research. So all those things come together, making it very hard to do clinical trials. And then finally, the last wrinkle is something that's recently come up with the, say, tocilizumab information. There's now information that perhaps it's not effective. And in the lead up for that, many patients uh, were either getting it as part of a trial or getting it as part of usual care. And clinicians had to struggle. Uh, should I give it to my patient because mechanistically it seems like it might make sense? Or should I withhold it from the patient potentially and put them in a trial, which means that they might get placebo and the usual wrestling that we do as clinicians as to whether our patients should be uh, part of a clinical trial in advanced medicine or uh, we, we should do what we think maybe erroneously is the best thing for the patient. Yeah. yeah I mean, you bring up a, a lot of uh, things and maybe that last point's interesting because some people early on uh, when we had so little information, we were trying to decide, you know, uh, on offering clinical care options for patients. And, and I think in the U.S., we always think doing something must be better than nothing. But yet there's that alternative, you know, bioethical approach that says when we don't know if something works, the only ethical decision is clinical trial because you could be doing harm. And, you know, sometimes we gambled right, sometimes wrong. Uh, you know, we won't know. I mean, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine seems like that was not the right gamble, uh, there for those. And maybe it's also true for tocilizumab. Who would have thought dexamethasone, of all things, a very broad anti-inflammatory, is better than a targeted one. But, you know, again, this just tells you <laughs> we're not nearly as clever as we think, even though we've made some very interesting intuitive issues. So when you're talking to patients, what, what are some of the concerns they've raised? Because as you, I think you hinted at a few things there that it's sometimes difficult to recruit when there's no relationship. You're, and patients may not be that well informed about things or have contrary ideas, for example. And, and you know, and certainly at Hopkins, you know, there's always some, uh, often some degree of mistrust uh, about uh, experimentation or clinical trials and so on. Yes. So one of the biggest challenges, or maybe the biggest challenge in the research uh, arena in this disease is that it's happening in groups that we're not really all that great at studying. Nursing home patients, we're not great at doing clinical trials in nursing homes because of logistical issues and because of regulatory issues. Prisoners, we're really not good at doing clinical trials in people that are incarcerated because of ethical issues in terms of uh, coercion. But, uh, but that is where the disease is. That's also something that happened with opiates and with hepatitis C communities that don't speak English uh, very well, that have a lot of people that don't speak English very well. We're not good at doing clinical trials because many of us don't speak uh, Vietnamese or Spanish or whatever uh, language is common in that uh, community. People that work in the meatpacking industry, it's not a group that we're uh, commonly getting in there and doing clinical trials on and with, and there's a huge trust issue there as well. So all of those issues uh, have, have been uh, huge challenges in terms of tapping in to the actual people that are suffering from this disease so we can get data on them. And uh, a lot of creative solutions are being thought up and implemented. And again, with Corona time, it feels like they're never implemented, but then we look back, it's like, oh, we actually did this in a month. That was really pretty fast. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I think you bring up points. I mean, you're uh, involved in a plasma, convalescent plasma study to for prevention. 
much like vaccines, I think, you know, for you guys, you talk about all the groups that are at risk and have high rates. In a way, it's a bit like a tornado chaser, right? You're, you're following the storm. But, you know, who are going to be the demographic of who looks for clinical trials? I mean, people calling me are like other professionals. They're like physicians that said, oh, I was exposed to my daughter and, uh, you know, who's positive. But, but they're also maybe going to be less likely to acquire it because they were taking some care and so on. So, I mean, depending who recruits to your trials, you may not, may not get a signal, right? I mean, you may have to expand your trial potentially because people are not being exposed enough, which is, of course, we don't want anyone to be exposed, but to show efficacy, you know, some people have to get the disease. Yeah, we have to go to where the disease is. We can't be passive and wait for low-risk uh, uh, individuals to come to us for a uh, post-exposure prophylaxis study because you really have to get into the areas where there's high risk. So, for example, we know that uh, somebody living in the same home, a spouse, for example, has uh, about a 30% chance of developing the infection. That's who we want. We don't want somebody who was already wearing a surgical mask and was briefly uh, uh, in contact with somebody because, again, we, we do want the uh, control group. We don't want, again, we don't want anybody to be infected, but we do want to see a difference between the control group and the uh, tested group. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, there's just so many challenges, and I've just been impressed at really what's been accomplished in such little time. I, I think people often don't understand all these barriers, but having done clinical trials myself and, you know, and, and you, I mean, it's just impressive how fast this has moved. And, and, and I think, you know, other countries might move a little faster because they have a national health system and, and uh, coordinated databases. And, and for us, it's always a little more challenging because you always feel like you have to create something. But in closing, Shmuel, just something just on a personal side, uh, you know, you've been a busy academic clinician um, with a great reputation. What percent of your life has remained the same? since uh, February of uh, 2020. I mean, just getting the sense, what's different? I mean, I know you're still uh, on clinical service and so on, but it, are you working 130, 150%? I, you know, just give, give some people a sense of what sort of uh, is being juggled here. Sure, so I would say that on a usual week, uh, ever since February 27th, which is when I went into uh, high gear, it's been uh, between 110 to 100 hours a week of working. My 16-year-old son said, when was the last day time you took a day off? And I initially was thinking, well, that was about a decade ago, but then I was <laughs> thinking, well, but it was back in uh, February. So he is invade upon me that this weekend, I'm gonna have a day with no computer or nothing. And I told him, how is that possible? Because I'm just gonna get back to the computer the next day and it's gonna be 200 emails. Uh, but uh, everything has changed. Uh, patient care, which uh, I, I, I love first and foremost in my heart, I'm a clinician. I take care of patients has been very difficult because uh, I have to do it uh, either through a monitor or through a, uh, uh, a mask with a face shield. And uh, I do think that uh, nonverbal communication is uh, at least 50% or more of communication. And we're just not getting that same nonverbal communication. So it, it's, it, it's something that we as a country, we as a profession have to go through. And I'm not going to uh, whine about it, but uh, it's, been, uh, it's been a very uh, challenging thing to uh, not be able to sit at the edge of the bed of uh, one of my patients and ask them really truly what they feel about what's going on so that we can chart a course together because it really isn't possible to do through the, uh, the visor. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, Shmuel, I really wanted to thank you for, you know, your tremendous efforts and so many others, as you said, it's always a team to 
try to help address important questions and potential interventions here. So really looking forward to hearing about your clinical trials and, and all the work that I, I can't even imagine that it's taken to get it to where you're up and running your, in your trials. So really want to thank you for taking a little bit of time uh, to let our viewers know a little bit about uh, a look under the hood, as it were. So thanks so much. Thank you. So I, I am a long distance runner and I do think of it about it in sort of the same way is that when you start out a marathon or even an ultra marathon, you don't think about the finish line. You just think about getting to the next mile marker, uh, using a football analogy, getting that first, that, that next first down. And th that's all we really uh, focus on is getting those first downs, the next mile marker. And then uh, hopefully at the end, there'll be something to show for it. Absolutely. Well, thanks again. And uh, I really look forward to hearing about your trial results. Thank you, Dr. Shoham and Dr. Awater for an enlightening discussion about a very important topic. As a reminder, to claim credit, please complete the evaluation at covid19.dkbmed.com and select today's activity. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q is in question, A is in answer at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19.